Volunteers magazine and see these faces that we recognise, great preachers, great worship leaders, great writers. And even as we look at big names in the Bible, we can actually create a disconnect in our heads. We look at people with very clear callings on their life and think that's great for them, but I'm just little old me. Don't we? We do that. We look at people, we can learn from their lives in the Bible, but we can, we can create this disconnect where we think, brilliant for them, I'm so glad God used them to serve us in the church, for example. But people like this are just everyday folk who, whose hearts are in the right place, and God's using them. And the good news is this morning that God wants to use you, genuinely. Jesus saved you for a purpose. Not just, just to glorify him, not just to spend time with him in the word and in prayer, to get to know the Holy Spirit, to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Part of that involves a specific purpose on your life. This morning, I hope by the end of this morning, you will believe the fact that you are saved with a specific and a significant calling upon your life. Do you believe that? Because we don't always, do we? Because we don't always act like it. There's a danger of writing ourselves off, isn't there? I know I've done it. But the fact is, we are saved with a significant and a specific calling upon our life. This morning we're going to look at Ezra. Ezra the man. But the key is, this morning, I was very aware that we've been looking at Nehemiah quite a lot over the past few weeks as we make our way through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I was very aware we're not actually looking at Ezra the man too much. That's what we're going to do this morning. But that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Ezra the man not what he did. We're not going to look at his exploits so much this morning and the things that God used him in. We're going to look at who he was. And that's going to be the key about what we can learn for ourselves this morning. So, we're going to turn to Ezra chapter 7. And the first ten verses. Then we're going to pray and then we're going to dig deeper. That's not my body. That's John's. Are you all there yet? <laughs> Chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Here we go. Lots of names coming up. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. And here's the key. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Lord Jesus, let's pray this morning that you'll open up your word to us. May your Holy Spirit just right now start working in our hearts that we can hear your word. We don't just listen and words fall upon us, 
But Lord, may your words just sink deep into our hearts this morning, Lord Jesus. Speak to us, please, Lord. Amen. See, we can all look at people like the Apostle Paul, King David, Ezra and Nehemiah, even people today like Terry Virgo, Mark Driscoll, Matt Redmond, Jackie Pullinger, people who clearly have a great calling of preaching, worship leading, working with triads in the walled city in Hong Kong, people like that. Again, like I say, they become a disconnect. We can look at them as almost like a different league of Christian, don't we? And the trouble is, we only really hear about these people because they're in the public eye, which means in our heads, we think a significant calling is about renown, is about getting recognised. That's not so. We can, we can look at these people and think, I'm no, I'm no king, I'm no prophet, I'm no great warrior. That could never be me. I could never be used by God like that. But I do wish I could be used in some great way for the kingdom. We still have that feeling. You're still thinking to yourself, even if it's subconsciously, that could never be me. But what if? What if I can? Do you feel like that sometimes? I know I do. There is great, great news this morning. If you have a genuine desire to be used by him, you can. That's what he wants as well. That's what he wants. Don't write yourself off. Rick Warren describes it like this. He says, There are no insignificant ministries in the church. Some are visible, some are behind the scenes, but all are valuable. Remember the parts of the body. When Paul describes the body of the church, you might be an ear, a heart, you might be a little toe. But they're all equally valid. Without a little toe, you start limping. There are no insignificant ministries in the church. All are valuable. Smaller hidden ministries often make the biggest difference. In my home, the most important light is not the large chandelier in our dining room. Rick Warren's got a chandelier. <laughs> Bless him. It's not the large chandelier that's the most important light. It's the little night light that keeps me from stubbing my toe when I get up at night. There is no correlation between size and significance. As we read through the it's like a hall of fame in Hebrews 11, isn't it? The great achievers for the faith. We kind of, we read through all these great names of Joseph and Gideon and David and Samuel, Abraham, Moses. All these great, in inverted commas, achievers for the faith. We tend to forget that towards the end, there's anonymous parties still get mentioned. There's women, there's some, there's others. Some of those others get sawn in too, and I don't think I want a bit of that. But the rest of it, the point is, there are anonymous people, unsung heroes, who made a significant difference for the faith. People like you and me. We are all called to something. Paul says to the Ephesians, he says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that calling? We have a general calling, all of us, to a life of holiness, to living life separately to the world, to living life with separate values, with new priorities in our life, to have someone else at the helm. It's about our whole lives being an act of worship. It's about our whole lives being commissioned to pass on this great news we have to the others around us, the world at large. That's the baseline. That's the general calling that we're all called to. But we are all, individually, called to a specific purpose to play as well. We all have a part to play. Because Paul also says in the Ephesians, here we go, he says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with them. I'm going to read that again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
See, the trouble is, we're not actually given a bullet-pointed job description when we become Christians, are we? It would be nice, like, you're a Christian now, so, and Jesus is saying, what I'd like to do is this, this, this. You need to go here in seven years' time and do that, but before you get there, you've got to do this. A couple of subheadings, while you're there, do a bit of that. Avoid him. Don't go there, but do that when you're over there. Wouldn't that be nice? Okay, no, off go. Yep, lovely. It doesn't work like that, does it? Because we've got something far greater, and there's a reason for it. We have his word, and we have the Holy Spirit for guidance, for teaching, and for correction. And as we, work, as we spend our time in prayer, in word, with the Holy Spirit, we change first. So here's the thing. If we just had that job description, we'd go marching off trying to fulfil that calling, and we'd in no way be ready to do so, <coughs> would we? We wouldn't be in the right place. The working out is part of the calling. As we work out our salvation, as we grow in our faith, we come to a point of maturity. We are then ready, at the right time, to take on that calling. Do you see the difference? This is why Timothy says, uh, sorry, Paul says to Timothy, church elders should not be new converts. Besides the obvious, they haven't got much experience and they don't know the word so much, it's also because character-wise, maturity-wise, they're not in the right place. They may well have a corner of eldership on their lives, but they have to have a work in, done in them before they're ready for that corner, before they're ready to take on that mantle. God needs to do his greatest work in you before he can do his great work through you. Working out is part of the calling. Even if you don't know what your calling is yet, what is happening to you now, if you let it change you, you allow yourself to mature, is part of your calling. This is why David, he was a young shepherd for many years before he got anywhere near leading a nation. Because there he learnt the true heart of worship while he was alone with his sheep and with his God. He started writing his psalms. He learnt the true heart of worship. He learnt what it was to put God first in everything for many years before he got anywhere near leading a nation. He also learned great, great um, lessons, life lessons from shepherding the flock. He then learned life lessons to how to translate that to shepherding a nation. His time as a shepherd was part of his calling. Do you see? One of, the, um, one of King Saul's aides, when David is first presented to Saul, this is before he goes out and kills Goliath, when he's first introduced to Saul, someone says this of him. He says, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valour, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. He was barely out of his teens. God has started doing his great work through him, before, in him before he's going to start doing his work through him. His time as a shepherd, as part of his preparation, as part of his calling. Moses spent 40 years with the Midianites in the wilderness. Love, 40 years before God went, right, now's the time. 40 years where he was learning patience. I'd suggest he was learning anger management. <laughs> Bless him. But he was also learning things like tribal administration. When he was then leading a million-strong nation through the wilderness, decades later, he knew that his father-in-law, Jethro, was the go-to man for understanding how to organise them into teams, into cell groups, if you like, with their leaders and their overseers. He was learning all these things for 40 years before he heard God speak through that burning bush. The prophet Elisha. From the moment Elijah places his cloak around Elisha, formalising his anointing, 
before he, from then to when he started his ministry, there's another 10 years. There's a 10-year gap there. There's a purpose in that, because he wasn't ready to take on that calling fully. God had to work in him before he could work through him. Even the Apostle Paul, when he first got saved, just he started, he started preaching straight away. But we can look back in hindsight and see Paul's clear calling was as an apostle, was in planting churches and taking the gospel across the empire. We can see that now. Paul didn't start that ministry for another 10 years. Do you see? And even Ezra here, we can see in verse 6, we can see that Ezra was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. That didn't happen overnight. It wasn't just a guy who bumbled about and then God went, right, I'm going to use you quick now. You're going to go after Jerusalem. You're going to put the word of God in the centre of people's hearts. Okay, uh, what's the word again? Ezra was a guy who was well-versed in the law. That takes a long time, doesn't it? So on Tuesday night, we're having a bit of a random discussion about fruit. Do you remember? While we were there, we were talking about how fruit in this country gets ripened very quickly, artificially, through using carbon dioxide. And it never tastes the same. Fruit that is allowed to mature at its own rate takes its time, tastes so much better, doesn't it? It's exactly the same. The working out of our calling, trying to work out what our calling is, trying to seek after God first, changes us until we're ready to take on the full mantle of the calling. The full mantle of the calling may not be revealed straight away until we're ready to find out what our calling is. To be honest, we may, ne- we may never find out what our calling is. Some people do their thing, pass on, and other generations can look back and go, that was what they were there for. But we have to be ready to be allowed to be used by God, even if we don't find out straight away. Remember those nightlights, that nightlight in um, Rick, Warren, Rick Warren's house, was just as significant as his chandelier. Don't write yourself off. You are equally significant. So let's take a look at, man, at the man Ezra, so that we can learn from him. Quick bit of background again, just to remind you, he doesn't appear in his own story until two-thirds of the way in, as you do. But 50,000 Jews have already returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. They start to work on the temple. They hit opposition. They down tools for 16 years. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah stirred them up again and they completed the work. And then there's a 60-year gap before Ezra now comes along to Jerusalem. And he, with Nehemiah, who joins him 13 years later, they re-establish the word of God right back in the heart of God's people. But Ezra didn't have a hunger for such a grandiose calling. He wasn't seeking after that calling. He was seeking after something completely different, a wholly different motivation than recognition or fame. And that's what brought his calling to fruition. There's two particular things we learn about Ezra in this passage. Firstly, we learn that he's a scribe. He's a teacher, is how the NIV puts it in verse 6. And the ESV and other versions call call him a scribe, which is probably a, a term we're more familiar with. We learn he's a scribe, and we also learn that the hand of the good Lord was on him. We're going to look at those two briefly as we discover more about the man. So he's a scribe. Who were the scribes? They're mentioned in uh, the books of 1 and 2 Kings and Jeremiah. And what it was, in those days when there was no mechanical printing, skilled secretaries were required to provide handwritten copies of government records, documents, letters, and of course the sacred writings as well. And in the Jews' gradual return back to Jerusalem, there grew an interest in and a hunger 
for the word, for the law of God, as these people started coming back to their homeland, some of whom had never seen it, probably most of whom had never seen it, they started thinking, who, 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 who are we? We're, we're God's people, right? And we've got these priests and these sacrifices. I'm really trying to get my head around who this God is and who we're supposed to be. They were trying to re-establish their identity in God, that they were God's special people, and they were trying to work that out. So there's an interest and a hunger for the word kept building. And so what happened? The scribes became the go-to people because as they were providing all these handwritten copies, they became experts in the word. Now the priests, Ezra was a priest as well, you find out later in the book. Ezra was a priest, and you can see that's why the genealogy, Aaron's bloodline, is proven that Ezra is one of his great-great-grandchildren because it's only Aaron's bloodline that could be the priests. So Ezra is also a priest, but that doesn't really get mentioned in this passage when we first meet him. We're told he's a scribe, and here's why. The priests originally, as well as providing the, um, the means for the people to provide sacrifices and worship to God, they were also responsible for teaching the law to the people. But as, P- as the Jews gradually returned to Jerusalem, the scribes became the go-to guys, became the experts. More and more people began to go to the scribes more than the priests. So eventually, the scri- perhaps sadly, the scribes became the teachers of the law rather than the priests, even though it was the priest's initial responsibility. And that's what happened. So Ezra, he's also mentioned as a scribe. That's why it's pointed out. Now, scribes, another word for scribe is rabbi. We have scribes today. There are scribes in Jesus' time. They're also called rabbis then. They're called rabbis now. You compare Ezra the scribe with the scribes, the rabbis of Jesus' time. Matthew compares them with Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 and he says, Jesus had authority. The scribes, these scribes had no authority. Because what they'd done in those 400 years from when we meet Ezra to when Jesus turns up, they've added more laws, they've added more rules, they've added extra definitions. And what they've done, they've just turned this living faith that is all about the heart. And they've added more to it and more and more to it. And they've turned it into something dry, unattainable, guilt-inducing, condemning, ultimately hell-bound. They just, they've corrupted it. They've completely destroyed it. They had no authority. Jesus says about them, they said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. They've just turned this living faith into a millstone around people's necks. They believed a set of hearts, a set of hearts, a set of rules could change the heart. And it never can, can it? In fact, a change of heart changes the rules, doesn't it? And this is why Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because you see, what happened in Jesus' time and today, you can Google it when you get home, rabbis gather disciples around them, just like Jesus did. Rabbis gather their disciples around them and they pass on their teaching to their disciples. Even today, it's still what they do. Their teaching is called their yoke. A rabbi's yoke is his teaching. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, he's not referring to farming implements. He's not referring to a lump of wood across two oxen. What he's saying is... My teaching is easy. My teaching, look at all these scribes, it's a millstone around their necks. My teaching is light because it's all based on grace. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's what he's saying. Ezra was a rabbi. Ezra had set his heart on the easy yoke of God the Father and the Messiah to come. He knew what the heart of the law was all about. He devoted himself to it and he was skilled in it. 
Because also, one other thing we can point out here is that not only was he setting his heart on the word in general, because he was a priest and because he was a scribe, he was setting his heart on what his current role in life was. Remember what Paul tells the Colossians, and to us as well, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We need to take seriously where we're at now. We mustn't despise where we're at now because God has placed us there for a reason. This is part of the maturing process as we learn what our calling is and as we take on that mantle. See, Ezra wasn't responding to some dream or vision that God had given him. It doesn't come to him, it doesn't send an angel and a big vision and says, you're going to go to Jerusalem and you and Nehemiah are going to pally up and you're going to re- get the word of God back in the middle of my people. He doesn't see all that. Ezra didn't know where his future was. And yet he still devoted himself to studying the word, to applying it, and to teaching it. Yes, he did have a job rather different to most Jews. He was a priest and he was a scribe. But I'd much rather see a farmer sold out for God than a priest or today a church leader who does it begrudgingly because both have a massive positive or negative impact on the kingdom. A farmer who is sold out for God will have a massive impact on the kingdom because God will use that. A church leader who does it begrudgingly will have a massive negative impact on the kingdom. So even though we can look at it and think, yeah, but Ezra was in a special job, it still applies to us just as much. Wherever you are, you can be used massively if you put it, if you send it Godward. Your calling may be as a manager, as a paramedic, as a teacher, as a neighbour or as a host, using your house for the gospel. That might be your calling. It's not, your calling is not just about having a whole set of orphanages across the country or having a great preaching ministry. Your ministry may be where you're at right now. We're going to look at a few examples later on of normal, everyday people who are used by God in a massive way, kind of relatively unsung heroes, really. These people still made a difference in a big way. And here's Ezra, he's setting his heart on God first. He took on the easy yoke of the Father and the Messiah to come. And thus, in verse 6, it says, the king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. God's favour was upon him because his heart was in the right place. This king granted him all he asked. And remember, this is the same king, Artaxerxes, who 13 years later grants Nehemiah all he asks. Why do you grant Nehemiah all he asked? The same thing. The hand of the good Lord is upon him, is the words that's used. And we've got that here. And also, three verses later in verse 9, four months later when Ezra and the people arrive in Jerusalem, they arrive safely because the gracious hand of his God was on him. God's clear favour, his smile was upon Ezra. Why? Because his heart was in the right place. And there's the key. It's all about the heart. He made a definitive choice. Have you ever heard the phrase, see one, do one, teach one? Anybody heard that before? Some? It's like, for example, can you apply it to anything? Jenny used to use it at Thanet College. She was, she was unable to teach everyone all at the same time. So she used to teach someone by see one, do one, teach one. She'd show them how to do something then she'd get them doing it while she's sitting alongside them. Then she'd get them to a point where they're able to teach someone else and pass it on. So Jenny was free to go and show someone else. See one, do one, teach one. A trainee surgeon stands by his mentor, surgeon, his consultant, if you like, watches an operation done to to a point where he understands it enough to have a go himself. Then he will have a go himself. He'll do it with his mentor by his side. No, no, left a bit, right a bit. Oop, missed. (laughs) Maybe. 
But then he comes to a point where he's done it enough with his mentor by his side that his mentor can then step back and let him do it himself and then he can pass it on to another trainee surgeon who's coming up. Amy, Amy does it on the computer. She loves fl- clicking around over CBB's website and printing off 50 million sheets of tosh. I mean, bless her, but it's just like, oh, thanks, darling. More ink. But she, I had to show her how to do it first. I had to show her how to use the mouse. Then it came to a point where she's able to do it herself. I'm just giving her a little nudge here and there and showing her which button to point, to click on. Now she can do it completely herself, clicking around that website, even to the point where around mum and dad's house, I'm going to hear her shouting out, no, popper, you click on that bit. She's teaching him now. She inevitably ends up with about 57 windows open at the same time. But she's showing him. She's only five, love her art. But see one, do one, teach one. Ezra knew the principle of see one, do one, teach one. Look at verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study, see, and observance, do, of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Study, observance, teaching. See one, do one, teach one. He understood that principle. And we too are called to exactly the same. Every single one of us. See, do and teach. James chapter 1 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's not just reading the Bible, it's applying it to our lives. See and do. But we're also, every single one of us is called to teach, just like Ezra. Matthew 28, the Great Commission says, Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Every single one of us is called to see, do and teach. Because you see, Jesus has gone back to heaven to let us carry on the glorious work. And he does that by a legacy of discipleship. See one, do one, teach one. We are called to study the word, to apply it to our lives, to teach others to do the same, that they might pass it on to others to do the same. It's a legacy of discipleship. See, it was back here in the Old Testament, not just after Jesus turned up. You see... Do you remember these scribes of Jesus' time had no authority? They studied the word, but they didn't apply it. In fact, they added to it, made it heavier and heavier and heavier. We have the strongest call, each of us, to study the word, to do it, and to teach it. And when I mean teach, I'm not talking about we're all called to be preachers, okay? That's a a different gifting. But we are all called to preach the gospel. We are all called to teach each other and to teach others about Christ and help them grow in Christ so that they might teach others, okay? And as we set our hearts on allowing the word of God to penetrate and then to bear fruit, we move on to maturity, we grow, we recognise and others will recognise our gifts in us. And gradually our calling becomes increasingly evident. Because you see, there's a danger. We can waft about and think, well, if I've got a call in my life, God will do it for me. And we can bumble about in life and just wait for something to happen. And yes, God will never be constrained by our ineffectiveness, will he? He is sovereign. He is bigger than that. But he so desires for each of us to be serious, to be deliberate about our calling, about our discipleship. He wants us to be deliberate in taking up the mantle of good works that he's prepared beforehand. Because if you think, these good works he's prepared beforehand, if they are significant, because they will not be insignificant, if he's prepared good works for you beforehand, they will not be insignificant, will they? And the Bible says he's done that. Therefore, you have significant good works prepared for you. So we have to be deliberate. We don't want to be passed by and he's going to use someone else, do we? He's prepared good works for you to use. 
Why did Ezra set his heart on the word? Because it's a demonstration of his character. His heart was in the right place for him to set his heart on doing so. Character, you see, is everything. You look at the Sermon on the Mount. The whole Sermon on the Mount is all about the heart of the matter. Jesus isn't, it's like that job description I was talking about earlier when you become a Christian, we don't get that. In the same way, when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he was penetrating straight to the heart of the matter. He wasn't talking about specific required activity. He wasn't saying, do this, do that. When you're in that situation, do that. You as Christians should act like that. It was all, every time he was just getting straight to the heart of the matter. If the heart's not in the right place, it's all for nothing, is it? You see, people can be called, they can be anointed, they can be really, really gifted, but character affects everything. I'm sure some of you, I can think of a few straight away, of people who have shown massive potential for the kingdom. True anointing. And they squandered it because their character, their heart wasn't in the right place. So sad. It's most likely Judas was part of the pairs that went out to perform signs and wonders. You think about this. Jesus, in Matthew 10, Jesus sent out the 12. He didn't send out 11. He sent out the 12 in pairs. Judas, in the previous verse, was listed as that tw- a part of that 12. Judas was in one of those pairs. He was 50% of one of those pairs that went out and performed signs and wonders. It's quite sobering, isn't it? Performing religious deeds, like those scribes of Jesus' time, or moving in the supernatural, is not an indication of good character. We need to be so sure our heart is in the right place. But thank God then that we do also have good examples of people with godly character, people we can learn from, everyday folk. Because besides the obvious, the big names that we read about, and there's obviously going to be vast amounts of great unsung heroes that we're never going to hear about because of that, they're unsung. But there are people in the Bible that get barely a mention in a verse here and there that are great heroes of the faith, people like you and me. Because you see, we can always think of great big calling or church ministry as about something that is where they get a full-time wage from the church. And you think, I'd love to be in full-time ministry. You are in full-time ministry right now. Because God sometimes takes one of his people, dresses them up in a nurse's uniform and puts them in the hospital. It's a full-time ministry. Sometimes he dresses them up in a suit and puts them behind a desk. Sometimes he sticks a hard hat on them and sticks them on a building site. Wherever you are right now, you are still in full-time ministry. Don't write yourself off. You can make a massive impact for the kingdom where you are right now. Here's some examples. Have you heard of Shifra and Pua? Some of you have read those names. You're trying to wrap your brains now. Uh, No. Good try. Exodus chapter 1. When Pharaoh realised the Jewish people we're getting too big, he decided an act of culling was required. And he said to the Hebrew midwives, when a baby's born, a Jewish baby, if it's a boy, kill it. Two midwives, Shifra and Pua. They were midwives. They saved a nation. <laughs> they refused to. They put their own lives on the line, and they refused to. And they saved a nation. Midwives. Everyday folk. Yes, they put their lives on the line and God honoured them for it. He gave them families of their own afterwards in return. They risked their lives. They weren't in full-time church ministry. They were midwives and they saved a nation. People like you and me. There was a a guy 2,000 years ago who he's mentioned, barely mentioned, just his name's mentioned in passing in two little verses in the New Testament. 
And the way he's referred to indicates he was either a uh, Roman government official or an influential citizen. But this guy had money and he wanted to put his money to good use. His heart was in the right place. He was just a member of society and he wanted to put his money in the right place. And what he did, he thought the best use of that money would be to pay someone, to act as patron for someone, to travel over a huge geographical area and interview all the eyewitnesses of Jesus before they died. And he paid this guy to travel around for a very long time, casting huge sums of money. And he interviewed everyone who spoke with Jesus, ate with Jesus, met Jesus, was healed with Jesus, interviewed their families, interviewed Jesus' family. The guy who did the interview was called Luke. And the guy who paid for his journeying to be able to catch all these eyewitnesses before they died, his name is Theophilus. And he gets mentioned in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, and the first verse of the book of Acts. He was a normal guy. Yes, he had money, but he put his money in the right place. His heart was in the right place. He's one of those nightlights that keeps the church 2,000 years later from stubbing its toe. We've got two books of the Bible because of that man. Normal guy, massive impact for the kingdom. Aquila and Priscilla, we've all heard of those. But they were stalwarts of the church, pillars of the church. There were Jews when there was a big uprising against the Jews in Rome, which is where they came from. They went to Corinth, where they met Paul. It's probably in Corinth that they got saved. They followed Paul to Ephesus. They spent many years there teaching Apollos, who was also instrumental in the early church. They made sure his doctrine was sound. They housed the church. They provided a space for the church to meet. They also eventually went back to Rome. You can see in Romans that they ended up back in Rome, again, being pillars of the church. They weren't necessarily church leaders. They were pillars of the church. They made a massive impact for the church. They might not even been aware what their calling was. At the time, no, we're just doing our thing. But looking back, we can put these guys on a pedestal effectively, don't we? Oh, look at their amazing, Quilla Priscilla. They were just everyday folk setting their hearts on God first. Lois and Eunice, mothers. Eunice was Timothy's mum. Lois was Timothy's grandmother. They're described as women of sincere faith. Timothy was only a teen when he first met Paul and went off with him on his missionary journey. But Paul recognised something in him. He recognised his potential. That potential was only there because of his upbringing. Mothers have a massive impact on their children, for or against the kingdom. Normal people. Remember those two old ladies that Ben told us about in the Hebrides, he was telling us last week, about Peggy and Christine Smith, those two sisters. Because of blindness and crippling arthritis, they couldn't get out to the public meetings, so they stayed at home. And they travailed in prayer, day and night, day and night, day and night, seeking after God. And because of people like them and others, look what happened in the Hebrides. Massive revival for two years. Huge outpouring of the Spirit. Two normal people stuck at home because of age and illness. And they were used in a massive way. You see, these are midwives, these are local officials, these are mothers... These are pillars of the church, the elderly and the infirm. There lay their callings. Do you see? Each one of us can be used in a massive way. Never write yourself off. It's all about the heart. Where is your heart set? It's been, it's, it's been said that to know a man's heart is to take a look at his diary and his bank statements. Where do you spend your time? Dangerous, isn't it? Where do you spend your time? Where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? Is it all balanced Godward? We've got to be so careful. Is my heart in the right place?
You see, there's a reason why we call disciples. But living a life of discipline, isn't it? It doesn't come easy. Marriage is more than just a key moment on a certain day. Marriage is effectively a daily decision, really. Jenny and I are doing all right, don't worry. It's not a daily slog. Oh, my life, I've got to love her again. No, of course, we're in a good place, aren't we, darling? My baby. But it's still a daily decision to love her up more, to build her up, to keep an eye on her. Is she okay? To remember to phone her up when I'm at work and say, how are you, darling? To, remember, to decide to put my laptop down and actually have a conversation with her. <laughs> oh, no, that's my problem. Yeah, look, mother-in-law's looking at me. It's a, it's a decision not to look at other women a certain way. It's a, it's a daily decision to put my wife first above other people. Not before Jesus, but above other people. She's my wife. It's more than just a decision in 1994. You work out the years. It's a, it's, a, it's a walk, isn't it? And the same with God. It's a walk. It's a daily thing. It's a life of discipline. Time is moving on. But let's, let's bring it back to Jesus. Always bring it back to Jesus. He's both our inspiration and our motivation. Jesus is the greatest example of setting one's heart on the Father, isn't he? He knew the scriptures as a child. Age 12, he spent three days in the temple asking the scribes, the rabbis of the time, asking them questions. What 12-year-old was going to do that? He had his heart set on the Father. And the favour of God was upon him. Just like the hand of God was on Ezra and Nehemiah, <coughs> the favour of God was upon Jesus. That's what it says in Luke chapter 2. And you may think, isn't that obvious? It's Jesus. Of course God's favour was upon him. Well, no, it's not obvious, because otherwise, why do we have to be told that? Why does the Bible tell us that? It tells us that for a reason. All scriptures, God breathed, suitable for teaching. There's a reason why that's in there. You see, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And as fully man, it's a mystery. We don't work out how it works. We don't need to. He's God. He was fully God and fully man simultaneously. And we can see the man part of him struggling. The closer he gets to the cross, he wrestles in prayer. He decides to go to Jerusalem. The words is he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You can see the man part struggling with this, but he's still deciding, no, I'm going to set my heart on what the Father's prepared for me. He knew what lay ahead, yet he set his heart on it. And that's why it says the favour of God was upon him. God's smile was upon him because his heart was in the right place. (coughs) Jesus was not about pleasing all. He was about pleasing one. He was not about being accepted by all. It was about being accepted by one. And we can learn from other people like Ezra about there is a lesson there. It's about pleasing one. And God will use us when our heart is in the right place. Because after that list of people in Hebrews 11, the names and the anonymous ones, the writers of the Hebrews then goes on to say, look back at this great list of people behind us in history, what they've done for the Lord. Their heart was in the right place and look what they've done. And he goes, now let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus fixed his eyes on the Father and what the Father's will for him was, for the joy set before him. And there's our example and there's our motivation. We need to fix our eyes on him. 
you want to discern what God has purposed for you, someone you can always ask yourselves, what is my calling? What, what am I here for? If you, want to, if you want to know what your calling is, if you want to be used in a big way, simply set your heart on him. Set your heart on the word, just like Ezra did. And then as you walk with him, as you grow and as you mature, as you discern your specific giftings, as you discover the individuality, the circumstances you're in, you're in and the relationships around you, you start to see this pattern emerge. You start to see God's footprint emerging. And then you'll start to realise maybe what your calling is. It's never handed to you on a plate. The working out is part of it. As you walk with him and as you grow in your gifts, as you grow in a burden for the world around you, you'll gradually discover your calling. It will fall into place. Ezra set his heart on see one, do one and teach one. God did the rest. Ezra didn't seek after a big calling. He sought after God. And there's the key. We may not be an Ezra. It might be a Lois or a Eunice, Aquila, Theophilus. In fact, more importantly, you're a Julian, a Barbara, a David, a Louis. You have an individual calling upon your life, but don't write yourself off and think it's just a small calling. You can make a massive impact for the kingdom. God has prepared good works for you beforehand. Never write yourself off. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, always. He's the answer to everything, isn't he? If we want to be used by the kingdom... Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because by doing so, we hear from the Holy Spirit, we hear through the word, and circumstances change, and things start to make a bit more sense. Sometimes it takes time, sometimes it takes years, sometimes it takes decades. Always fix your eyes on him, and you can be used in a big, big way. If you don't know Jesus, and you have no certainty what the whole point in life is in the first place, fix your eyes on Jesus. It always comes back to him, doesn't it? He's the one around whom everything falls into place. He existed with the Father and the Spirit before all things were made. Through him, all things were made. When our sin, our selfishness, corrupted everything. He didn't just humble himself to be a man and come here to provide the answer. He came here to be the answer. Because before a perfect God... We can never stand in his holy presence, stained as we are, and claim justice. It's never going to happen. Something has to be done. A punishment has to be paid. And Jesus paid that for us. Every single one of us. Jesus said, come to me, take my yoke, my teaching, learn from me. My yoke, my teaching is easy. It's the sweetest invite to a life of discipleship you will ever hear. In him you'll find the whole reason for being alive. Without him, well, we'd be living a, an eternity without God, wouldn't we? With him you have an eternal destiny that isn't just set for heaven, it starts now. He saved you for a purpose now. It starts here on earth. This life is fleeting. and We never know how many more chances we're going to, be, we're going to have to ensure that Jesus is at the centre of our lives, that our hearts are in the right place. So I suggest let's close our eyes let's pray. Let's fix our eyes on him. Lord Jesus, once more we just want to focus on you and just realise that 
all the kind of paraphernalia of our lives gets in the way, stuff floats around and gets in the way and blurs our vision of you and we kind of lose sight of you. Lord Jesus, help us once again to fix our eyes on you. You're the reason for everything. But you haven't just saved us to go to heaven. You saved us for a purpose here on earth. Like Ezra, like Nehemiah, like all the names in the Bible, but also all the unsung heroes as well. You have good works prepared for us. And Lord, we just say, we just want to be used by you. Lord Jesus, help us to work out our calling. Help us to work out our salvation. But Lord Jesus, help us to do it for the right reasons. We don't want to do it to get recognised. We don't want to do it for the fame. We don't want to do it to see our names in print. We want to do it to see your kingdom grow. Lord Jesus, help us do that. Help us apply the word this week in our cell groups. Help us to learn more practical ways of doing this. But Lord Jesus, ultimately let us always fix our eyes on you author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, we love you and we just want to put you first in everything. Help us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. If you've got any questions, come and find me or John or David. If you want prayer,